0: Song of Solomon, chapter 8. And we'll commence at verse 1. O that thou wert as my brother that sucked the breasts of my mother! When I should find thee without, I would kiss thee, yea, I should not be despised. I would lead thee and bring thee into my mother's house, who would instruct me. I would cause thee to drink of spiced wine of the juice. Of my pomegranate. His left hand should be under my head, and his right hand should embrace me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that ye stir not up, nor awake my love until he please. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I raised thee up under the apple tree. There thy mother brought thee forth. There she brought thee forth that bare thee. Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm, for love is strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. We'll end our reading at verse 7, and we'll bow together briefly in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that Thou wilt apply Thy truth today to our hearts. Apply it to my heart. Apply it to every heart. Fill me now with Thy Holy Spirit. Breathe Thy Spirit out upon us. O God, open our ears. Open our minds. Open our hearts. And we say, Speak, Lord. Thy servant heareth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My text is found at the beginning of verse 5 of this 8th chapter of Song of Solomon. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? Now the question uh, may be a question just to find out who is this or it may be A question uh, that is eliciting some surprise and some wonder. Saying, who is this? Who is this person that is coming up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? And may I just say this? Uh, The one who is coming up leaning upon her beloved, it's you. It's me. Because as we've seen in the Song of Solomon, it is a love story. A sacred love story between Christ and uh, the church. So we are the church when we're saved, and Christ is the beloved. So the wonder is, who? Who is this? Who are these people? Part of the church, coming up out of the wilderness, leaning upon uh, their beloved. It's you if you're saved. It's me if I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, someone has spoken of the wonder of seeing some people in heaven that they never expected to see there. It said that would be one of the great wonders of heaven. And another wonder, sadly, will be the wonder of missing people. People that we thought were set fair for heaven. People who perhaps made a profession. We might even die uh, under the impression that they are following us, that they're coming to heaven, that they've joined us in heaven and then we discover the wonder that it was all false and that they're not there. But then it has been said that the greatest wonder of all will be the wonder of finding ourselves there. So when we say, who is this? What a wonder that you and I, most unworthy, should be found in heaven. Back in the time of uh, George Whitfield and John Wesley, there was a very great preacher uh, in a Yorkshire village called Haworth by the name of William Grimshaw. He entered the ministry unsaved, but the Lord saved him. And he saw a transformation of the whole area. He was quite a character. It is said that sometimes to round up the strays in Haworth, he would get the congregation singing the 119th Psalm. And he went out while they were singing and uh, you would have seen people uh, diving in through windows, getting out of sight. The parson was coming and they wanted uh, to escape his clutches because he would have insisted on their coming to the church. Now, John Grimshaw had two children, a daughter who was saved and a son by the name of John who wasn't saved. John outlived his father by just three years. But in that time, John Grimshaw got saved. And he was met one day by someone from the parish. And he was riding what had been his father's horse. And the man said to him, I see you're riding the old parson's horse. And his reply was, yes, once it belonged to a great saint of God. Now it belongs to a great sinner. And as he was dying, John Grimshaw was heard to say, What will my old father say when he sees I have got to heaven? Yes, what a wonder. A wonder. And it is a wonder. And here we have it expressed for us. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? So as we think about this, The first thing I want you to notice is this. Where the bride is coming from. She is coming from the wilderness. The wilderness is a very lonely place. And Robert Murray McShane said, You will never find Christ so precious as when the world is one vast howling wilderness. And that's how the wilderness is described for the children of Israel In Deuteronomy chapter 32, a vast howling wilderness. Children of Israel were about to leave that wilderness behind. What a sad, lonely place this world is. Never meant to be like that. The world should have been a place of supreme joy and happiness, a place of great holiness. But then what did man do? Man sinned. Man was driven out of paradise he was driven into the world, away from paradise. It was secured by the flaming sword. And man could not enter paradise. He could not go back into the Garden of Eden, except at the end of life if he's redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. But what, what a sad thing. Man driven out from the joys of the Garden of Eden. Driven out from fellowship with God because of his rebellion and his sin. What has man found? He has found the world an increasingly lonely, sad place. We cannot find the joy uh, that was in Eden in this world because of man's sin. It is also a place of fear and a place of danger. After the Lord Jesus Christ have been baptized, we are told that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there with the wild beasts. What a horrible picture there is of the wilderness there. Uh, You think of the things that creep along the ground, the serpents, the snakes. You think of the wild animals. And that is meant to be a picture to us of the world in which we live. Many dangers, many things to cause us fear, many things to seize us by the heel and uh, to put the poison into our system. Wild beasts to tear us to pieces. We are traveling. We're traveling through a very lonely spot in this world. You might say, and indeed many unsafe people will say, well, I've lots of friends. yes. But at the end of the day, they are individuals. At the end of the day, those friends won't be with them when they come to die. They're traveling, while they may be in a family, they're traveling as lonely passengers. You and I, traveling as lonely passengers through a world of fear, through a world of danger. And it is a place that is lacking in sustenance. Yes, you might say there's bumper crops. I, I remember a man telling me that uh, when he traveled with his wife through Canada, they went on the sleeper train. They were traveling thousands of miles. And when they lay down at nighttime, they were looking out on fields of grain. Eight hours later, they woke up and they were looking out on fields of grain. And it seemed as if they hadn't moved. And so we might say there's, there's plenty of physical sustenance in this world, but it's a place that lacks sustenance for the soul. How empty this world is. I've often quoted what the same writer of this book states in Ecclesiastes. He says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's all so empty. And interestingly, Ecclesiastes comes before the Song of Solomon. I think that is so appropriate, but then it's not my wisdom that placed the books in their order. Ecclesiastes shows us how empty the world is. How frustrating it is in this world. When you're wrapped up in it, it brings you no satisfaction. And the man who had the greatest opportunity... To taste of the things of this world, to experience any fullness that is found in them, was Solomon. He had everything. Read through Ecclesiastes, especially chapters 1 and 2. And what is the conclusion he comes to when he has tasted everything, done everything that will gratify the senses? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And at the end of the book, he sums it up and says, Fear God. Fear God. Because life without God is a wilderness. The soul without God is an empty soul. And doesn't that prepare the way beautifully for the next book, The Song of Solomon? Because it speaks of the beauty and the greatness there is in Christ and how Christ satisfies. The world's a wilderness. It's a place of danger. It's a place of fear. But in Christ, we find satisfaction for our souls. But also say we can say something more concerning the world. That it is a place of entanglement. You know one of the things that, that God told Moses would happen. Well, when they would leave Egypt. The Egyptians would follow them. They would say they're entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. There they were uh, in uh, in Egypt, and they were going to escape. God has led them out. And the death of the firstborn has taken place. They have feasted on the Passover lamb. Pharaoh is crushed. His firstborn is dead. All the firstborn in the land are dead. And the Egyptians are sending the Israelites away, sending them away uh, with great wealth, no longer empty-handed slaves. And then Pharaoh changes his mind. And he says, I'll pursue them. I'll follow them. I cannot lose them. I'll destroy so many of them. I'll break them. The wilderness hath shut them in. They're entangled in the land. And that is true of this world. It is a place of entanglement. It's very easy to get entangled in the things of this world. It may be a relationship It may be an ambition. It may be the pursuit of money. There's so many things that entangle us. And you know, the thing about entanglement is you can get entangled very quickly. Uh, Last week we were thinking of how the bride, uh, after we've reached the peak of joy and love, uh, the beautiful garden, the beloved in the garden, uh, the breezes blowing the fragrance out into the surrounding area, the next thing, she's saying, I sleep, but my heart waketh. She has become cold and indifferent and selfish. And she has to suffer, as we saw, as a result. Well, do you know how close the wilderness is to us? Moses was told to say to Pharaoh, Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness from the prosperity of Goshen, uh, where there was pasture for the sheep and all uh, their animals, and they had homes to dwell in, three days, and they're in the wilderness. The wilderness is very close to you and me. And we were in the wilderness by nature. You're a child of God. You've been in that wilderness, entangled, lonely, Empty, full of fear, with all the dangers. Lost, guilty, dissatisfied, driven from paradise. And you can think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 40. He took me up also out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay. Sinking in filth and squalor. That's what we were, Because that's what sin is. I was reading recently something that cropped up. On my phone, I think it came via WhatsApp. Somebody had seen it and sent it to me. A man called George Chen. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, He died just about a year ago. And that man lived out in China. I think he moved to Shanghai. And early in life, he was saved. And he started churches. And he had three congregations that he had started with 500 people in them. And then, sadly, he came. Under the notice of the authorities. He was imprisoned for four years. Uh, he and four others. Uh, they were in a little room at night time. And the only space they had to sleep was by lying on their side. And they had a bucket for a toilet for the five of them. In that little cubicle you might call it. It didn't break his spirit. And so after four years. They sent him to do one of the most fearful, horrible tasks. They sent him uh, to to shovel human excrement, and that was to be used uh, to fertilize the lands, the fields. And for 14 years, he was in that prison. He said that because of the task that he was performing, the guards stayed well clear of him. The stench uh, was unbearable. He felt sick. And he felt the Lord had deserted him. And then the Lord drew near. And he was able to pray for his people. He was able to praise God. And he said he could sing at the top of his voice. Because the guards, they were staying well clear. And his favorite hymn was one that we have, uh, in our book, in English, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still in the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear. The Son of God discloses, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own. And the joys we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. After 18 years, and I'm digressing a little bit here, after 18 years he was released. And he came back wondering, wondering would there be anybody left of his people, would his congregation be destroyed, or the congregations indeed. He met an old lady who was amazed to discover that he was still alive. They politely shook hands rather than embraced because that was the way they reacted to one another. He found out that while he was in prison, his wife had died, his son had been killed by the authorities. But to his amazement, he found that the congregations he had left behind with 500 people had now grown and there were 5,000 people in the congregations. God had moved. But I come back to what I really wanted to emphasize, the squalor, the filth that, that he had to deal with. Well, when the psalmist says, he took me up out of a horrible pit and out of the miry clay, that's what the Lord has done for you and me. Who is this that cometh up From the wilderness. We're coming out of fear. Coming out of entanglement. Coming out of danger. Coming out of emptiness and dissatisfaction. We were lost. We were guilty. Surely we should stop. And we should say thank you Lord. If we're saved. Thank you for what you have done. For me. Thank you for your mercy. I could have continued. In that wilderness until the last breath was drawn, and then I could have plunged into everlasting misery in hell. What a wonder, as John Grimshaw expressed it. What will my old father say when he sees I have got to heaven? What a wonder that you and I, unworthy, sinful, sunk in sin, should be saved and should be coming up out of the wilderness and out of that place of barrenness where there is no pasture, no satisfaction for the soul. But then notice in the second place the direction in which the bride is going. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? You know when you're saved and walking with God, you're always going in an upward direction. You're always, you're going in the right direction. Go away from God, you're going downhill. Remember the story of the man who fell among thieves. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Physically, Jerusalem to Jericho is downhill, but also it is downhill spiritually. Jericho was a city under the curse Joshua said, Cursed be the man that riseth up and buildeth the city of Jericho. And Hyel the Bethelite did it. The statement was made, he laid the foundation in his firstborn, and in his youngest son he set up at the gates thereof. And that's what happened. The statement, the prophecy was this. Joshua saying, You build this cursed city again, you know what's going to happen to you? Well, the man who's the designer of it and the builder of it, his first son will die. When he starts the project. And his last son will die when he completes the project. And the implication is all his sons in between will die. And so hardened was Haile the Bethelite, he did it and he suffered the judgment of God. Downhill, downhill, Jerusalem to Jericho. And when you're going away from God, going away from the place where the Lord is found, You're going downhill. You might think you're progressing. People think that if we cast off God, we're advancing, we're progressing as a nation. We're cutting off those old superstitious ties. No, you're not. You're simply going downhill. The more we reject the fear of God in the public sphere, in our governments, the further downhill we go. And haven't we got all these problems? Because of our turning our backs on God. Now, when you're saved, you're turning upward. You're going in an upward direction. And after salvation, we look for progress. Uh, We're uh, heading away from sin. And we're heading in a direction that leads to joy and peace. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? What is it? Is it misery and wretchedness and narrowness of spirit and so on? No, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And the Bible says, against such there is no law. You don't need a law against holiness. You don't need a law against Long suffering and gentleness, and a law against love. My, that's that's what's desirable. When people behave like that, you don't need to legalize uh, to put them behind bars. And when we're going in the right direction, that is a proof that we're really saved. Didn't Christ say, "Ye shall know them by their fruits"? You see, it's not enough simply to make a profession. We can say, well, I'm saved. I'm the Lord's. But is there evidence? Is there evidence that you're heading in that upward direction? James says, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And in chapter 2 of James, he tells us that... Uh, that that we're we're revealed as as Christians by our works. And he chooses two wonderful examples. One is Abraham, and he says he was justified by works. The other is Rahab, and he says she was justified by works. You know that Martin Luther, uh, we might say, had a bit of a stagger at that. He thought that the epistle of James was an epistle of straw. For he thought James was teaching salvation by works. And he had tried to get saved by works. Tried to make himself acceptable to God by works. And then he was shown it's trust in Christ. It's faith that saves. And so he thought James was teaching something contrary to what Paul was teaching. And he called it a a, a straw epistle. But later on I think he understood it. James was not teaching salvation by works. He was showing that works when you're trusting in Christ are the evidence that you're saved. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So when we're saved, uh, we're going in an upward direction. We show the fruit of salvation in our lives. Yesterday I read a wonderful sermon by C.H. Spurgeon. I read a wonderful term by Spurgeon every day and uh, uh, well it benefits uh, my soul and blesses my soul and he was speaking on Simon Peter's mother-in-law you remember she was sick of a great fever and they told Christ about her, he went in he healed her and the Bible says and these were the words of Spurgeon's text, she arose and ministered unto them And Spurgeon was showing how when a person is healed and he applies it to salvation, that person manifests the healing. He said that talking about how she felt, if she'd been lying there in the bed saying, oh, I feel good, you know, but she isn't able to get up, she isn't able to do anything, she's not really healed then, is she? And then he says... If she said, well, I hope I'm better. Uh, I'm expecting one day to be able to to, to do a little bit of work again and and to minister somewhat in the the house. He felt, well, that's not real healing, is it? And uh, he said if she had been feverish and had, had suddenly had a great rush of excitement, got off the bed... And suddenly had that surge of feverish strength and then collapsed really afterwards. That wouldn't have been healing. No. He says, the real proof, she arose and she ministered unto them. And he points out she did a simple task for Jesus and for his disciples. When you're saved, you start doing the little things that are pleasing to God. And she did it for Christ. When did you last do something for Christ? Not just for the church here, or for your family or for a friend? When did we last feel, "I'm doing this for Christ? He wants me to do this, and I'll do it for him. Might be difficult. But he's asked me to do it. He'll give me the strength. He'll give me the grace. And and it's a menial task. It's a menial task. Maybe a child helping mother out by washing the dishes or a husband helping the wife out in some way or a wife helping her husband out in a little way and doing it for Christ. But then also, she ministered unto them. She ministered unto his disciples. And notice as well, and Spurgeon points this out, She began immediately. You don't wait until you're ten years saved or fifteen years saved before you start serving God. You start at the bottom, you start with the little tasks, you do it for Christ, you do it for those that He loves, and she began at home. We all want to be missionaries abroad, for it's far easier to witness to people you don't know than to witness to your nearest and dearest. But she began at home and she was never pressurized. She acted voluntarily. She was, she was immediately, immediately. She was uh, set about uh, doing what was right, ministering to Christ, ministering to his disciples, doing what she was able to do, and showing forth the transformation. She's no longer in a fever. She's no longer sick. Now she's well and she's strong. She's making progress. You know, some people... They can be saved 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And you can hardly trace a line. If you started here and you're saying uh, here, over here would represent progress, you look at them and you can hardly see. You can hardly see the progress. Who is this that cometh up? Cometh up out of the wilderness leaning upon her beloved. She is making progress. You know, we stand still far too much. And nothing else stands still. Isn't it sad that Christ does a work in our hearts? Or at least we profess he has done a work in our hearts. And we're at a standstill. Going nowhere. Nobody can discern that we've stepped an inch forward from the day we made that profession. That is so sad. And nothing else, I say to you, stand still. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been traveling Today, by car, we wouldn't have electricity in this building. No. We'd be traveling in a horse-drawn carriage, or maybe riding on the back of a horse, or maybe walking to church. You see, society has progressed. Science has advanced. Medicine has advanced. Are we to be the, the, the only part of society that doesn't advance, where people have to get a, a, a microscope and look and see is there any advancement? Is there any progress? When you're saved, the evidence is progress. Who is this? Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? She's out of the wilderness. And the evidence that she's out of the wilderness is that she is, she's going forward. Step by step, day by day, year by year, she is advancing. Advancing in love for Christ. Advancing in service for Christ. Advancing in the knowledge of Christ. Doesn't the Bible say, but grow. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now there's one more point I want to make. I want you to see the support that the bride receives from her beloved. Who is she that cometh up from the wilderness leaning upon her beloved? That word leaning has the idea of supporting oneself. She's supporting herself on her beloved. Now here's a point that Spurgeon also made. And for many years ago, I remember reading it. You can't lean on someone that isn't there. You know, I, if I imagine there's, uh, there's support there and I lean over and I put all my weight on it, down I go. Christ is real. That's what I'm saying to you. The Lord Jesus Christ is real. I'm, I hope you have proved him. I hope you have proved him. In times of distress, and we've all had them, and I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, can say. That you look to him. Don't we read? God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. I Generally, if I go into a home where there's been a bereavement, I will read that Psalm 46. A very present help in trouble. He's always there. But you run into trouble. You lose a loved one. And then you see how precious the Lord is. It's not just in times of bereavement. there's other trials, troubles that come to us in this world, and you go into stress, down upon your knees, or maybe if you're not able to do that, you're sitting there praying, you're crying to God with all your might, and you're so troubled, you can't see a way through. How am I ever? How am I ever going to survive this? That's your attitude. And the Lord comes. And the Lord strengthens you. And you have come from a place of distress. And you go out. And your heart is jumping for joy. You feel the Lord's love. You feel his power. And you know, you know he has heard you. And even before the answer comes in just the terms that you're looking for that answer, you know it's going to come. You know that the Lord has answered your prayer. So you're leaning on someone that's really there and he always proves himself. And another thing about leaning is this. If you're leaning on someone, they've got to be very close to you. And that's the beauty of trusting Christ and walking with him. Not only is he there in times of distress, he's very near. He's very near to us. When we gather in a group such as this, the Bible tells us, in the words of Christ, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I. And he says, in the midst of them. He's in the midst. Some people, when they're praying, add some words to the words of Christ. They say, he's in the midst and not to bless. It's not in the text, but it is there in reality. When he draws near, he's near to bless us. And, You know, when you're leaning upon Christ, that implies complete trust in all that Christ is and in all that Christ has done. My, you're leaning upon one who is almighty, one who made the heavens and the earth. And when your faith grasps that and you realize, he who made heaven and earth is with me. He who defeated the devil and triumphed over the devil On Calvary's cross is with me. He who shed his blood for my sins is with me. He's very near. She's weak, the bride here. She needs support. How weak are you and I? How weak? And we lean on the arm of omnipotence. Who is she? She's leaving the wilderness behind. She's progressing, leaning upon her beloved. Now she needs his support for another reason, and that is she's going in an upward direction. It's difficult to go in an upward direction. I don't do any climbing, uh, and I know some of you here do, and you talk about hiking here. And we have a wonderful mountain in County Fermanagh. It's called Toppet Mountain, and base camp is uh, well, uh, base camp is reached after about fifteen minutes. And the top has reached after about 20 to 25 minutes. Or in fact, probably less. Uh, my brother Keith and I, uh, we got up top of the mountain. And David has climbed it since. And it's one of the wonders of the world. It's a glorified hill uh, rather than a mountain. But it's the tallest point, I think, in County Fermanagh. One of the counties of Northern Ireland. Well, that's enough for me for climbing. But when you start to go up, Uh, and go higher and higher and higher, uh, you discover it's harder to breathe. Uh, You're beginning to gasp for air. If you're unfit as I am, uh, you're really gasping or you stop and you want to come down, well, you need support. Maybe the support of some oxygen. It may be the support of a friend. Travelling through this world, you'll discover there are mountains Not physical mountains, but there are mountains to climb. There are difficulties to face. And that's when we need support. Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? She's going up, leaning upon her beloved. And we can say, he didn't fail to support her. She's leaning. He's still there. And he's always there. And when we come to the end And we're not finished there, you know. Because we're going to be supported in one more great event. We're going to be supported in the resurrection. We're going to rise up. We're going to rise up. Christ will raise us from the tomb. We'll rise up in a body that is glorified, a perfect body that encloses a soul that is without sin. Rising up, coming up. You might say out of the wilderness of the tomb. Leaning upon our beloved. So what, what cause here for admiration and astonishment? Who is this? Who is this that cometh up from the wilderness? I ask you, is it you? I ask myself, is it me? How do we stand Before the Lord, I say to you, determine to leave the wilderness behind and to go forward with all your trust upon a very special person, the Son of God, our Creator, our Friend, the only Savior for a lost mankind. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father, in heaven we pray that thou would apply thy truth to all of our hearts. Speak to us, Lord, and direct our steps. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.